Father, each one of us uh, came in here today in a different place in our life, even if it may be similar places in our lives. We come in at different, uh, different stages or different situations, uh, different jobs. We just we come in here and uh, some of us had a really good last few days. Uh, I'm one of those. Just had a really good last few days. And uh, for others, there was a lot of tears. Uh, there was some loneliness. And, uh, but we're here now. You brought us to this point. And uh, you're going to speak to us. Uh, I, in a conversation with somebody, and even with these people, I can just say what I can say. Uh, help me to be faithful to your word. Because if I'm faithful to your word, God, you're going to speak to us in unique ways. Uh, and you're going to somehow or another apply the word that's in Jude 3 and 4 to our lives as different as they may be. And so help us to be changed as we look at grace, life-transforming grace. Help us not just give a hearty amen to the word grace and the doctrine grace, but stay in our place. Help us to be transformed by that grace we so love. Uh, we're going to hear about that here this morning. So open our minds, open our ears, uh, open our hearts, Lord Jesus, and help us to be changed today. We trust that you will lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, for everything that has value, there is a false version of it. So there's true versions of things and false versions of things. In Southern Illinois, if you go looking for gold, you'll find some fool's gold, but you won't find real gold or traces of it. I love the show Gold Rush. It's my all-time favorite show. Love it. Uh, on Discovery Channel. I can watch it over and over again. And uh, just love that show. And if there was creeks around here uh, with gold, I, I, well, I'm just glad that there isn't because I would be the guy that just sold everything to go out and you know find gold in the creek. Um, but I love gold. And if you go looking for rocks and stones around here, you'll find some formica, you'll find some other uh, kind of stones and rocks. We do have some rock quarries around here, but you'll find some fool's gold. There's uh, true versions of something and then false version of something. And uh, fool's gold isn't real fool's gold, but it's just not real gold. Gold, So it won't have the value. Uh, dollar bills have, uh, have uh, fakes, fraudulent bills that are circling around. Hundred dollar bills, whatever they may be, there's, there's fake versions. That anything of value. Has a false version of it. In the scriptures, we see these dichotomies like crazy. There's true versions and there's false versions. Uh, John, the Gospel of John, is a, a book that we're going to be preaching through after this book, the book of Jude. We kind of wanted a buffer book to lead into a larger book. So we finish Genesis and Jude and then go into John, and we're thinking maybe uh, praying through possibilities of maybe the book of Philemon before jumping back into an Old Testament book after that. We'll see where the Lord leads on that. But in the, in the Gospel of John, there's a really interesting di dichotomy of, of the word belief. There's in the book of John, there's true belief, and then there's false belief. Uh, true belief is just all the way through the book, and false belief is just all the way through the book. And we'll look at that in detail. Uh, so we have um, uh, belief, faith, something that's valuable in the Scriptures. And we have clearly versions of false belief. Clear, clear. There's something that's false. False belief in the Gospel of John. And our goal when we preach through that is to okay, discover, because the whole purpose of the book of John is that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. The whole point is true, saving belief. So there's true belief and false belief. The book of James does this with faith as well. There's true faith and there's false faith. Faith without works is dead. Uh, James says, can that faith save you? Can a faith that has no works save you? No, because it's dead faith. 
It's not real faith. So there's true faith and there's false faith. True belief and false belief. Uh, holiness. Holiness is another thing in the Scriptures. There is a false version of holiness and it's called legalism. If you grew up in the church with holiness codes at all, you know that in the hopes and the desire for the people of God to walk in holiness, there's all these codes and rules. And in reality, it's not real holiness, it's false holiness. It's legalism. It looks good on the outside, but the inside of the cup is full of disease. Now, not always, but it's full of, uh, well, not godliness, not humility. So there's true versions and false versions. Legalism... <coughs> Isn't the same as holiness. And holiness, contrastly, conversely, doesn't automatically mean legalism. Here's the truth. We should all long to be holy. There's a big difference. It's not the same as saying we all want to be legalistic. But sometimes, for people who love grace, we'll see today, they look at those who have concern about real holiness, and they want to call it legalism. Okay? And so we're going to look at the difference today. So there's true versions and false versions of holiness. Jude is going to show us the same thing can happen with this word that we love so much around here. This word grace. There's true grace and there's false grace. There's true, true grace and false grace. And we need to know the difference. And Jude is going to show us with great clarity the difference. And so what is that difference? How can we know? Look at verse 3 and 4. In the book of Jude. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. Jesus Christ. Now, I want to keep in mind, as the backdrop of the sermon, the desire that Jude has for us. The desire that Jude has for us is that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied. Remember at the beginning of this book, last week we talked about how we are kept in Christ Jesus. These great themes just that are introduced in the first two verses of the book of Jude. And we were going to remember that, that mercy, peace, love, just wave upon wave of it coming our way. Jude started off the book with a bang. A bang of grace. Just all your way. It's coming your way. And I want it to be multiplied. That's his desire. And then he gets in and shows us then the purpose, the greater purpose that he has. He laid out his desire for us, but then he's going to lay out the purpose for the book. He starts off telling us what he was originally eager to write. Because this really isn't the book that Jude originally wanted to write. But the Holy Spirit intervened and had him write a different book. Jude starts off by saying, Beloved, again, a term of endearment and love to each other. And by the way, pause here. Um, you are brothers and sisters if you're in Christ. More so than your blood relatives who, doesn't, who don't know Jesus. More than that family that you spent time with this weekend. You love them. We're called to them. We, want, we have responsibilities to our DNA family, blood relatives. But if you are a believer and your brother, real brother or sister, is not a believer... This family here is a, is a more important family. This family, this is family. Brothers, beloved. And so often we kind of think, okay, church members, we, we get kind of church associates. But that's not the truth of the Scripture. The truth of the Scripture is that we love one another. We have a great, great love and compassion for one another. And Jude, in saying beloved, communicates that he loves them. He says, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, pause, 
He's going to write something else. What's the book that Jude wanted to write to these believers? Well, he's been a believer for a while now. The people he was writing to already were Christians. And yet Jude tells us that he wants the reader to know that he wanted to write about this common salvation that we share. And we share. We've got a kid escape me right there. Uh, he wants to write to them about a common salvation. A salvation that he shares with the beloved. He wanted to write them about salvation. They're already believers. He's been walking with the Lord, his brother now, for years. And yet still... The man is wanting to write to them about the basic things of faith, common salvation. What a statement. Now, for some reason, for a majority of my Christian life, this escaped me. That the gospel of Jesus, the common salvation that we share, would be something for believers. Salvation was for non-believers growing up. I remember going out, hitting the streets, and I still appreciate this form of evangelism and still do it. And walking out with the big question track. Many of you have probably seen the big, big question track. Uh, Kyle, your buddy Z, big question track. He used that. Or Z? Z. Z. Man, he, I'm sure he passed about a thousand of those things before. Uh, Kale's passed out, I'm sure. I'm sure fair, a few of those. Terry has passed out a few of those. Uh, the big question is if you were to die today, do you have the assurance that you're, you would go to heaven? It's a good question. Do you? Have the assurance that you would go to heaven if you died today? Death is a possibility for us today. But for me, that question kind of was representative of what I thought the gospel was, that just the complete and total gospel was for. It's for non-believers. You tell the gospel to non-believers. But Jude here is writing and telling us, no, the gospel has implications for believers. And I am eager, in fact, to write to you, believers, about this common salvation that we share. I thought salvation was only for the unbeliever. We find out, apparently, it has implications for us. I kind of thought I would become a Christian, or when I became a Christian, that people really would, would go on then, they would study things like Genesis chapter 6, they would find out who the Nephilim are, they would get their answer. Who is that? They would figure out Revelation after you become a Christian. We move on to those really, really deep things like in Revelation. We'd find that out, figure that out. We would move on to things like baptism with the Holy Spirit. Well and good things. But I kind of thought the gospel of Jesus, the common salvation we share, was something that we left in the past. But Jude carries with him an eagerness to talk about it still this day. And I would ask you if there's a freshness in you or not to talk about this common salvation that we share. I think there ought to be. And he really wanted to write us about the good news. But his plans apparently were interrupted. His plans to write this letter. To take pen or more appropriately feather in hand or whatever it was in hand. And to write was interrupted. Some came, something came up that needed to be addressed, that halted him. And to be clear here, he does write about the gospel. He's already shared things about the gospel in this letter. But this is not the letter that he originally wanted to write. The Holy Spirit changed some things on him and in him. So what was it? What interrupted him? 
what needed to be addressed. Well, he kind of lets the cliffhanger hang a little bit longer and he tells us a few other things before we get there. He says this, I found it necessary, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith. He has an appeal for us, for his reader. Now, this letter wasn't written to just a specific church. The letter was written to Christians in general, all Christians. For Christians, this letter is for us. It wasn't like a letter that originally went out to the church of Galatia, although that is authoritative to us. This letter is addressed to all Christians, anyone who would ever read it, as is the rest of the scriptures. But specifically here, he's writing not to pastors or a particular church. He's writing to Christians, the people in the pew, the people in the home, the people in the catacomb. The people on the run, Christians, who would hear this letter, and he is calling for them to contend for the faith. Now this is fascinating. He doesn't write this letter asking for pastors and leaders in the church to contend for the faith. He's saying, you, Christians, church members, contend for the faith. He doesn't write this pastoral epistle. He doesn't put on a pastor's calls. He doesn't invite them to come, doesn't write a blog about it. He writes to the Christians, average, everyday believers just like us, and calls for them to do something. Church members, what? I want you to remember that you have responsibilities here. If I ever preach something that is unfaithful to the Scriptures, I should be called out about that. Bring me to the side, take me out to eat, and say, you know what, I don't think that was right. And if for some reason our church ever gets to where we're not preaching faithfully to the Scriptures, please leave here. Address it. Try to get us moved on something. But the goal here is to contend for the faith that He wants to appeal because apparently the people of God can be quite apathetic in contending with the faith. And at this point, the false teachers had so kind of got their way in with all the other believers that the churches stopped contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, contending for the faith is out of fashion today. And apparently, even in the first century, because this letter was written, contending for the faith wasn't all that popular then either. Because he has to appeal. Please contend for the faith. Now, we live in a day when conviction is about anything. Like being convicted about anything. True. This is true. That is not fashionable. Uh, truth in a culture of cowards and hate speech. That's what Neil McClendon says anyways. I almost stole that quote. Didn't feel right about it. Truth in a culture of cowards is hate speech. Contending for anything today is not popular. Appealing to the authority of the Bible is considered almost condescending even to the people of God. But the Bible tells us to contend. Contend for the faith. You have a part of, in this thing. But the question rises to the service. Contend for what? Contend for everything? Because contending doesn't necessarily mean, mean being contentious. And you and I have met people who are contentious, who are ready to fight at a drop of a hat. Have you ever met anybody who would almost call you a heretic because you believe the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews? 
There's no room for discrepancy. There's no room for anything to be open-handed. We've all met the person who will argue about anything about the Bible. The call is to contend, not to be contentious, but to contend for what? What's the parameters for the contention? Well, he goes in greater detail and he tells us, contend for the faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, here's the truth of the Bible. There is only one Christian faith, not many. The Christian faith will never change. The message of Christianity is unique. You can't find it anywhere else. We've got the market on this message. The message of grace. The message of God saving sinners, not sinners, or not good people getting to God. We've got the market on this thing. Faith alone. Apart from works. We are not saved by our works. All religions in the world agree with that point. Yeah, we are saved by our works. Whatever we can do, whatever we can carry, the burden is on us. Only Christianity says, Jesus came to take the burden away. And He saves us, and He saves us alone. We've got the market on this faith. We have a faith that is defined by the Scriptures, and so we're not to contend for a faith that we've made up on our own. We, don't, we, we contend for a faith that was given to us. Okay, so are there things then that we should fight for, go to bat for, and things that we don't have to? And I think there clearly are. But Jude is going to get really specific. He's going to bring us some clarity. He's going to tell us what specifically he is appealing to us to contend about. What are, what are we contending against? What are we contending for? What we, what's the battle here? What's the fight? What is the false teaching? The cliffhanger continues. And in verse 4, we're told, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. Um, Contending, what Jude is calling us to do, is something that happens here in the church. Now, Christians in large part have good have been good about contending with non-believers for the truth. The last round of political craziness, we were contending for the truth with non-believers. We have no problem dropping names like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and who we're going to vote for, not vote for, who's the good guy, who's the bad bad person, all those sorts of things. Uh, well, I can't vote for anyone. We have no problem contending for the truth out there. But the problem is, the Scriptures call us to contend for the truth in here. Amongst people who claim the Bible as their authority. Among the broader body of Christ. We're, content, we're to contend for the faith. So, people who don't love the Bible and don't follow Jesus, they don't have... Our concern with them is that they would be saved, not that they would hold the biblical authority. They're not Christians. Why would a non-Christian hold the biblical authority? They're not going to. We contend typically and easily with people who don't claim the Bible to be the authority. The point here is that we are to contend for the faith in our midst because there are people who crept in unnoticed into the church and they are the ones that we are to contend against. Now, the church in large part, again, almost gives everyone a pass. Because it, it's easy to drop names for non-believers out there. But as soon as we begin to drop names or contend for the faith in the broader body of Christ, you know what happens? As soon as we say a false teacher's name, people get freaked out and mad. As soon as the church starts contending for the faith and saying there are some things that are just outside of the Christian faith, there are some things that are just unhealthy, we freak out. Okay. Jude doesn't. 
Okay? Uh, we get... Okay, false teachers, these false teachers crept in, and he wants them to be identified and then something done about it. He wants us to contend. Now, Jude knew the people may be fooled, fooled, but God is not going to be fooled. Okay? We're gonna, I'm gonna throw out a few names here in a second, but I want to get this clear first. Uh, false teachers may go unnoticed in the body of Christ, but they don't go unnoticed by God. And God here tells us that their judgment was set and determined a long time ago. God, long ago, designated condemnation for these false teachers. Jude knew the people may be fooled, but God isn't fooled. He determined to judge the false teachers in ages past before the foundation of the world even began. That's what it says. Certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago, and they were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. So false teachers may be sneaky. Those we are called to contend for, may to contend against, may be sneaky. But God knows. But we still have a cliffhanger. Because we know there's some teachers that are infiltrating the ranks of the church. But we don't yet know what they are teaching exactly. What is it that they are teaching? Well, we can jump off the cliffhanger. We finally get to it. The second part of verse 4. These people who were ungodly people were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. And denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We are introduced to false grace. False grace. The people who are preaching this grace loved to throw the word out there. They were so-called grace preachers. Loved grace. We love grace. But in reality, it's so-called grace. It's cheap grace. It's false grace. They were perverting the grace of God. It's not real grace. They were preaching a version of the gospel of Jesus Christ that used grace as motive, as a motive for self-gratification rather than self-sacrifice. Grace was their ticket to gratify their sinful desires, not to lay down their rights, so to speak, and not to they wanted to avoid self-sacrifice. It was about self-gratification. Much of so-called grace preaching today is nothing more than self-love preaching. One name. Grace is the outlet that Joseph Prince, if you see him on TV, he's, he's, very, he's a very pretty man, <laughs> um, talks about grace all the time. It's the outlet that he uses to show how awesome we are. He turns grace into the ultimate self Help manual. It's almost like after hearing him preach, and I've read books that he's written, it's like, gee golly, I am awesome. Grace is a way to elevate self, to pull myself up and out. But he says just enough right, just enough good, to hook you and to hook countless numbers of others. Grace for him is a path of discovery of how great I am. Great things about myself. God gave us this grace. <coughs> Let me 
because I am worth it. I am deserving. I'm deserving of it. <coughs> we must remember that contending for the faith starts in the church. It starts with being aware of okay, what, what, what teaching is infiltrating our people. What is sounding right, but is it right? And what is leading people down a path of destruction saying, Oh, I love grace. I love the gospel of Jesus. But we're not changed at all. We're not living godly, holy lives. We just love this idea of grace. I'm forgiven. But I'm not different. These kinds of teachers are why so many people are leery of grace. A kind of grace that doesn't call for repentance. Those who preach this version of grace are quick to discard anyone as a Pharisee, by the way. Anyone who would call this kind of grace preaching into question automatically is labeled as a Pharisee. Oh, you just love the law, don't you? You just love rules and legalism. Well, the false teaching had to be addressed. And this is what Jude had to confront. But I want you to notice how he addresses this false version of grace. Because it's fascinating. He doesn't begin with the law. He doesn't say, okay, grace, yes, 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 that's great. But what you really need is the law. You really need to obey. You really need to pray. Oh, no. He comes at false grace with true grace. Because true grace is so much better than false grace. The real deal is a whole lot better than generic. Than the generic. To use God's grace to motivate sinful self-gratification is to not know grace at all. The real grace is, in fact, better. What is this real grace? Real grace is about gratitude and submission. Verse 1, Jude already tells us in here that he is a servant. He tells us that we are kept in verse 1. You are kept, so this grace thing is true. If you're in Christ, you're never going to be outside of Christ. You're not going to lose the salvation because you didn't find it. God saved you. He forgave you. He imputed His righteousness to you. You are His. You're not going anywhere. Okay, God is faithful. He has you in your grip. It's not about you gripping onto Him and holding on to Him. You can never lose your salvation. Grace, this is what He brings to us. That's what He wants us to know. He wants mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied again. Grace, this is grace upon grace. He wants you to know about this grace. And if you understand that, here's the truth. Why this sounds so audacious that people would say, use grace to go out and be sinful or to gratify ourselves or become somehow more selfish rather than self-sacrificing. It's sheer insanity. If you know that God has multiplied grace, mercy, and peace to you, if you understand that, then you want to serve Jesus. You want to follow Him. You want to submit to Him. Grace for you has become the way that you discover great things about God, not about you. False grace is about discovering great things about you. True grace is about discovering great things about God. And friends, it makes a world of difference. You are not that interesting. And neither am I. And you will get really bored eventually with a grace that has you looking at the beauties and the intricacies of yourself. It makes you inward. It turns you inward. But true grace is all about the glory and the honor and the praise. It's all about the glory of Jesus. This is the grace.
place that turns you outside of yourself. It makes you look at Jesus and it changes everything. Therefore, Jude says, in the beginning of this letter, not just this grace thing, he says, I'm a servant of Him. I'm His slave. And He is my Master and Lord, which is what verse 4 says. Look at it again. Pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, grace means you don't have to submit, even if they wouldn't verbally say that. Here's the reality. You have a Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, and we are His servants. And if we understand grace, it's our joy to say, I am laying down my rights. I'm laying down what I want. And I'm taking up all the things that God has for me. I'm going to love people instead of demand things from people. I am not the center of the universe anymore. I used to be. But now I am free to give things up for the sake of my family. For my brothers and sisters. This is true grace. Understanding and knowing because of what God has done for us in Christ, because He tells us things like you're kept, you're, you're not going anywhere, you can't lose your salvation, we willingly say, okay, you're my Master and Lord. Yes, I'm a son of the living God, as I said last week, but He is my servant, and I, I, am, I am His servant, and where He leads, I'm going to go. Where His Word tells me to go, that's where I'm going to go, and I'm going to obey Him. And others are going to stand alongside and say, gosh, you're so legalistic. Don't you know grace doesn't mean that? Uh-uh. No, I'm going to fight that my language would be changed. False grace looks at people who have convictions on simple things like language. Some people who say they love grace the most, I kid you not, have the filthiest language that I know. And if you love God, if you understand grace, things like speech changes how we talk. Simple things. Basic integrity. Do you have it? changes how we do our taxes. It changes how we treat our employees. If we understand grace and we're following Jesus, we start to love the brothers and sisters. The world is going to know that we're Christians not by our love for the world, but by our love for each other. Do you love each other? Or do you just want everybody else to love you without you loving them? Okay, this is true grace. Our master, oh my gosh, going forever. <laughs> Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. I'll wrap it up. Verse 11 and 12. This is true grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace has appeared. It brings salvation for all people. Not that everybody is saved. This is not universalism. But everybody who is saved, this, it's grace that has brought salvation to all of you. And all of you who are saved, you're not saved any other way but by grace. Like, that's how we get into this thing. And grace keeps coming to more and more people. It's just going out in this city. It's going out right now as non-believers are gathering in Christian circles right now. And they're hearing about the gospel of Jesus. They're repenting of their sins and they're trusting in Christ. Grace just keeps coming. But this grace, when it comes, when it smashes into you, as one preacher said one time, you can't get hit by a Mack truck and stay the same. You can't get hit by the grace of God and stay the same. You get hit by the grace of God, things change. But all who are saved are saved by grace. But notice what grace, the grace of God does to everyone who is saved. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And live upright, controlled lives, self-controlled lives. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is real grace. 
And these false teachers were coming, and Judas calling us to contend for the faith. Oh no! If you love grace, then you love following Jesus. You love repenting of sin in the smallest of ways. Yes, you are set free. Yes, we have Christian liberty. We need to fight for those sorts of things. But we are free fighting to follow our Master and Lord. And we submit to Him. And we change and we repent of our sins. And we fight for basic, godly integrity over the smallest things. Real grace frees us, sets us free, lifts our burden. And it also restrains us from sin, helps us to fight sin. Now, here's some questions. Andy and the team, you guys can come, come up. How about us? What, what is real grace? True grace? False grace? These false teachers, they seem, to be, they seem to be in. It doesn't seem like a group that needs to be come down on very hard. And apparently, already, there were these people saying, if you love Jesus and you got Him, just forget following Him. Forget, just do whatever you want to do. Anything else is just legalism. No. We want to contend for godliness. We want to contend for Christ's likeness. We want to contend for what grace does. It sets you free. It changes you. And it makes you, instead of a self-centered person, it makes you a God-centered person. This is real grace. Here are some questions. Are you submitting to Christ? Or wanting Him to do what you want Him to do? Because grace helps you submit to Jesus. Helps you to stop laying down your demands. God, I love you if you keep doing this. If you do this, I'll love you more. Oh no. Real grace. Real grace. I'm talking hundred proof grace here. Real grace. It helps us submit to Jesus. Say, Jesus, what do you, whatever you want for me, I see in your word that you've called me to spread the gospel to the nations. And if that means talking to somebody today and I'm really uncomfortable, that's not my personality, Jesus. I don't care if it's my personality. I'm going to talk to somebody about you today. I don't care if it's the hardest thing in the world for me to do. I'm going to submit to you. You're my master and Lord. You told me the gospel is going forth through all the nations. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to today. Jesus, help me. Help me. God, there's a behavior that I, I, I need to stop. God, I'm never going to stop fighting. Help me, Jesus. We submit to Him and we change. Are you living to gratify yourself? It's a big question. Think about that. Is your life, is my life, the way I interact with other people, when I'm upset, am I upset because I'm not able to control that person? They're not doing what I want them to do? Am I living to gratify myself? Am I expecting God to gratify me like that as well? False grace puts you on the throne waiting for other people to serve you. Real grace makes you love other people. It's love people. Yes, real grace. It's love people. It puts you, real grace puts you out of the center of the universe. Question I have for our church. Is this a community of self-gratification and self-love? I hope not. Or is this a community of self-sacrifice rooted in a love for Jesus? Self-sacrifice. We sacrifice for each other. Now, the crescendo. May we never buy into false grace. Jude's going to come down hard on these false grace teachers. If we buy into false grace, we will become a selfish people who love grace. Love. Don't care all about that legal 
legalistic stuff like repenting of sin, though. I don't know about that. Really? Repent? Change? Real grace is a whole lot better. It's a whole lot better. Let's pray.